Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. First, let me give you two caveats, um, and you should feel free to uh, interrupt and ask questions by all means. Uh, in Israel, you know, we have a general policy that if you don't interrupt, it's considered rude. So please uh, don't hesitate. Uh, the first caveat um, is the, what we're going to actually do today. We're going to look at an Israeli Supreme Court uh, case on bankruptcy. It's from 2017. Um, and the reason why I like to look at Israeli Supreme Court cases um, as a rabbi is because Israel has a unique law. In 1980, uh, the law was passed that when a Supreme Court um, judge makes a decision, he is supposed to look at what Jewish law has to say on the issue. Um, in other words, until that point in time, precedent in Israel was whatever had come previously, which was mostly British law and a little bit Turkish law. In 1980, they said we should also look, make sense, we're going to look at British and Turkish, and by the way, for that matter, then they looked international law on the US and the like. It makes sense we should also look at Jewish law. So that law was passed in 1980, um, and it is very often used, and it's, I find it as a rabbi, inspirational. Some of the Supreme Court justices who really know Jewish law, and by the way, there are religious and secular judges who really know Jewish law, um, it just adds so much to their decisions. Um, but unfortunately, not all, every judge knows, um, and to help them out, there's actually a department in the Ministry of Justice funded by the government that tries to write almost shadow decisions oh. on a number of different uh, cases that come up and help and suggest ideas to the justices that they should look at it. Um, but of course, there's so many cases, not all of those get the special treatment. So one of the things I like to do is sort of step in the place of what might Jewish law say on a particular Israeli uh, legal case. So we're going to look at the Israeli case. Um, sort of discuss some of the Jewish law issues around it, see how the Israeli court decided, and then see if Jewish law would have decided it any differently. Um, that's the first caveat. The second caveat, as you see from the, the title of the shir, of the lecture, um, it says, it's a Yartzeit shir. My father, uh, his name was Marty Pear, Moshe Ben Shmuel, um, and I decided to actually pick this court case uh, to learn in his memory uh, because um, it's a bankruptcy case, and he didn't go bankrupt, that's not the reason why. But in the, the course of looking at it, um, you're gonna see, we're gonna see competing interests. Um, and we'll get into what those competing interests are, uh, which are usually what happens in most court cases is very seldom is it good versus bad. It's almost always good versus good. And you have to simply decide which is gooder, right? Which is the, the more important value that we should be promoting. And one of the discussion issues that comes up is the issue of a guarantor. Um, I don't know if guarantors are used as much here in the US. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All, even for individual, uh, uh, on a regular basis, individual loans through the banks. The banks, it's, um, in Israel, it's across the board. 
get yes, uh, although they're more important in the commercial context, but there are our lenders have a certain cyclical uh, problem that I'll describe to you after the okay. after the lecture. And so, even though they're absolutely vital because the the borrower entities have no assets right. other than the one that the loan is being taken out on behalf of. Right. So that, in Israel, it's it's very common. It's primarily for younger families. It, what happens very often, as you speak about, these younger couples have no assets whatsoever. Um, and even, to, even if there's collateral, uh, the banks want to know that they're somehow covered by someone. Uh, and so it's a, there's a very established guarantor law. The word in Hebrew is arev, means guarantor. In fact, there's an interesting, funny story um, that when we come to Israel, uh, Americans very often mess up in Hebrew significantly. Um, and uh, I remember when I was very young, I was offering to babysit some, some kids. I was like, uh, I must have been 16, 17 years old, and I offered to babysit the Israeli kids uh, of friends that I knew. And I said, I was trying to speak in Hebrew to them, I'm willing to accept your kids at 8 o'clock, something like that. And instead of saying, I'm prepared to lechabel your children, I said, I'm prepared to lechabel which means I'm prepared to terrorize your children uh, at 8 o'clock. So we have a lot of these mi yeah, mi mistakes. So <laughs> there was a story that actually appeared in the Jerusalem Post about a person who moved to Israel, and he went to the bank to get a loan, and they said, you need to get these guarantors. But they said it in Hebrew, and we don't always understand what is said. Anyway, he comes back uh, a day later with two Arabs, and the two Arabs come, he asks them to sign, they sign on the document, and... Um, no one really understands why. How do you know these people? Why are they doing this? Anyway, it comes out, he misunderstood. The word for guarantor, as I said, is Arev or Aravim. And uh, that's Aravim. is also Arabs. So he brings forth, you know, without the lack of familiarity. So anyway, it's something that's happened. It's very common. Uh, we have to uh, um, bring guarantors to get loans. The banks are much more um, personal, I would say. For me to get a credit card, when we first moved to Israel, come in to get a credit card from my bank, um, they said, well, you have to come back here in six months. I said, you see what's in my account. You see my salary's going in. You see, he says, yeah, but I don't know you at all. Not until I know you as a person am I prepared to sign off. It wasn't just a standard application type of thing. Um, but because it introduces the concept of guarantor, which really, to me, uh, describes my father, uh, quite well. That's why I decided this particular case. Okay, so let's get to the case itself. The case um, is called uh, Edith Skok, which I will come back to in a minute. Edith is uh, the Israeli name, the woman who is the guarantor, okay? And she is suing the wife of a, uh, a man by the name of Edward Iskovich. Everyone agrees that Edward is a scoundrel, okay? Edward and his wife, they get married, they get divorced, he uh, has to pay, as part of the divorce settlement, um, what we call in Hebrew mizonot, which literally means food, but it's, I guess, what you would call today alimony or child support, okay? So he, maintenance, right? He, he has this obligation to pay uh, child maintenance and, uh, and, and support and uh, alimony, and um, he is doing that. He's paying, making his, his uh, monthly payments, uh, and he decides he wants to leave the country to go on a business trip. Um, his wife is suspicious that if he leaves the country, maybe he won't come back. And so she puts an order that says 
He stopped at the airport. This happens also in Israel quite frequently. It's a small country um, that you can go to the court and put uh, orders that stop people from leaving the country unless certain financial obligations are met in one way or the other. So he's leaving the country. He says, I'm coming back you know, in a week or two. The wife doesn't believe him. So they say that he can only leave the country. The court decision is if he gets a guarantor on, to sign on his, his child maintenance. And he finds this woman, Edith. He must have had some business relationship with her or the like. She signs to the guarantor, right? He's coming back anyway. She won't be obligated. Even if he stays longer, he'll send the payments. Anyway, as we all know how the story is going to go, he goes and he disappears and he never comes back. So the wife now turns to the guarantor, Edith, and says, Edith, you owe me money. Um, and she signed the contract. And so she agrees. Uh, she's the guarantor. She's not obviously happy at all. Uh, she feels that she's been taken advantage of, and if she ever sees Edward, she'll sue him for the money. But in the meantime, she's legally responsible. She makes the, the payments until her business uh, goes south, um, and she has to file bankruptcy, um, all forms of bankruptcy, right? Personal, corporate, everything. She has no money whatsoever. As part of the bankruptcy decision, her debt of paying the child support to, on, for Edward is discharged. Right? The debt is canceled, and so therefore she is clear and free at this point in time as well. Until so the wife steps back in, and the wife uh, sues or challenges the decision of the bankruptcy court. She goes to district court and says she should not have a discharge of uh, uh, alimony payment or child support. And she has support for it. In the Israeli law, the Israeli law says bankruptcy law is important. We want discharges. We believe in the whole concept of fresh start. It's a very important value. In Israel, it's spoken about. Actually, we'll come to this in a little bit. Israel did not support bankruptcy law for a significant amount of time, but now has come around and is very, I would say, similar to most Western states in terms of support of bankruptcy law. Um, we believe in the concept of fresh start. Uh, we want you know, entrepreneurs to take chances. We want to support them. I would add there's almost a Yom Kippur element to it, right? You start again. Whatever mistakes you've made, you get a brand new start. And the only way you can get a fresh start completely is if you have no debts whatsoever. However, in the Israeli uh, bankruptcy law, there is a uh, sif, there is a clause that says, but this will not apply to uh, debts of child support. You have to keep those. Those will never be just, cannot be discharged. Yes? Now, in American federal bankruptcy law, that would be considered a discontinuity because the, the, debt, the debt owed by the former husband was child support. Right. But the guarantee of that debt is a contractual arrangement that isn't colored by the nature of the, of the thing. So he would... So her discharge would be impervious. Right. So Israeli law hadn't spoken about this particular issue. Meaning, for sure, if it's the husband, he's obligated 100%. And if there was not a bankruptcy involved, the guarantor is obligated 100%. The question now is, exactly as you raised, does this debt, because it's connected specifically to child support, flow also to the guarantor? And Israeli law doesn't speak about it. Um, and you can imagine the arguments on both sides. She took a debt. It's a, we don't care what the debt is. For guarantor law to work, and that helps the economy, because as I said, young couples are not able to buy houses unless you have guarantors, and banks are not going to give unless they know that the guarantor will be held responsible. 
So on one hand, you say, we want to hold the guarantor responsible. It's important for the whole system. On the other hand, uh, what people point out is saying, there's actually two elements of the debt. There's the economic element, and there's the moral element. And the moral element, the guarantor takes on all economic elements, but the guarantor doesn't take on the moral elements. Here is a father who has a parental responsibility. The parental responsibility does not flow it stays with the father no matter what. It doesn't flow to the guarantor. Anyway, this argument goes back and forth. Um, and what is presented to the district court is three competing interests. On one hand, you have the obviously very important interest of uh, child support, that child should not suffer uh, as a result of all, everything that's taken place. Um, the second competing interest, as we spoke about, is this very important value of a fresh start both for the individual as well as for the economy in general, that it has been determined, although there, is some, uh, there, are, there are a number of different studies that suggest that Fresh Start does not work as much as it's been praised, even though it's the basis of really bankruptcy law in so many places. Uh, but that value. Uh, and the third is what I just mentioned, the, the economic value of having a guarantor system. And the judges have to now balance which of these three uh, is most significant, such that we should guide us uh, along the path. Um, one thing I would just add about how they balance these ideas. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with The Three Little Pigs. Yes, you remember the story? So I came across a book once by a psychologist who interpreted what The Three Little Pigs story is really all about. Um, and one of the, I think, brilliant insights that he, he shows is that the first pig, right, he builds his house out of straw. The second pig sees that that doesn't work. So what does he build his house out of? Uh, twigs which is basically a stronger form of straw. It's the same, it's sort of on the continuum of straw, but just a little bit stronger. The third pig, you would think, would therefore build, if you followed what the second pig did, would build this house out of logs, right? That's the continuum of going from straw to twigs to logs, but he doesn't. He builds it out of bricks. It's a totally different way of thinking. What the psychologist suggests is when we get stuck uh, in life and with issues, most of us engage in second pig thinking. We're gonna do the exact same thing, but better. We're gonna invest more time, more energy. Whatever our flaw is, we're gonna do the same thinking, just somehow do it a little bit better. And sometimes that's just not enough. What you need is third pick thinking. Third pick thinking, it says, I'm gonna do something totally different. And what I'm gonna suggest is my analysis of this court case is, the Supreme Court comes along, and I think they come to the right conclusion, and they use second pick thinking, though. Second pick thinking is, they have these three values. These are economic values, primarily, but also a moral value in terms of the child. And they basically say, which value is more important for society at this point in time? Is it the bankruptcy? Is it the guarantor? And, and what I think Jewish law wants to argue here is third pick thinking in the sense that it's not about these three different values and which is slightly more important than the others in this particular case, but there is one value that sort of doesn't crush these, but actually colors all of these values, and if you don't have this one value, you don't have anything. So that's where we're gonna go for. Now before we get to what the district court says and what the Supreme Court says, um, I just wanna sort of back up a little bit and show you what Jewish law says in general about these three values. Um, certainly, it's fairly, fairly obvious that Jewish law has a lot to say and is very concerned with uh, child support. There are a number of different sources that talk about the obligation of parent to child in the economic realm, in the uh, educational realm, uh, in the moral realm, in the love realm, right? A parent has to take care of their children um, 
that's almost, we almost don't even need any sources to say that it's an obvious, but the Gemara and Kedushin speak specifically about what are the obligations of a parent to their child. The guarantor law also has its sources in Jewish law. It's less obvious, um, where it actually appears most interestingly, and it's parallel to what I mentioned earlier about young couples, is in terms of a ketubah. In the Talmud, it speaks about young couples who couldn't get married. So this is a little bit uh, before they even get to the house. Why couldn't they get married? They want to get married. They're in love. But in order to get married in Jewish law, you have to have a ketubah. The ketubah is a real document. The document says that if there is, God forbid, a divorce, the husband is going to pay a full year's salary, more or less, to the wife so that she's taken care of for a full year at least. It is an actual financial document. Um, and by the way, in Israel today, here in America, it's very often used, you know, you make it very beautiful and it's colorful and this, but, but it's a real genuine financial document and you actually have to put a specific amount. In, in America, I've never heard them use a specific amount on the ketubah. And I remember the very first wedding I performed in Israel, um, I, there was actually a, a debate between the uncle of the bride and the chatan, the groom, because the groom said, uh, there's, it's blank here. And he said, we have to put a number in. And so he said, okay, I'll put in 50,000 shekels. It's about $12,000, $13,000. The uncle was there, he says, absolutely not. You have to put in 500,000 shekels. So I can't put 500,000 shekels. You have to, she's worth, anyway, this goes on and on. We ended up, we ended up in my standard position now as I put 180,000 shekels uh, all the time, but you actually put in a specific amount. So these couple, the, husband, the, the young uh, groom wants to get married. He doesn't have any collateral, he doesn't have any money, so he can't give the ketubah in, in really you know, we call it tom lev, uh, good intentions, a good heart, a pure heart, because he doesn't have that money. So he goes to a friend, a guarantor, and the guarantor signs on the ketubah as the guarantor and says, if you end up getting divorced and you owe her this amount of money, I will pay the money. And then hopefully after a couple of years, he eventually accumulates the money and the guarantor is then set free. So we have those stories in the Talmud. So guarantor law exists. The question is, does bankruptcy law exist in the Torah? On first blush, you would want to say no. And that's one of the sources that I brought for you. Um, so if you look at the Rambam, the Rambam, uh, the first page, the Mishnah Torah is his collection uh, of, um, uh, of his understanding of all the halachot, all of Jewish law um, from A to Z. And um, he writes as follows with regards to the laws of malve velove, borrower, uh, I mean, uh, creditor and debtor. So if you go to the, the third paragraph, if the creditor claims the debtor possesses property but is hiding it, and it is present within the home, according to the law, it is not proper for either the creditor or an agent of the court to enter his home to seize the property. We're going to talk more about the obligations of the creditor. Exactly, I'm sure. Um, so there is a certain sensitivity to the debtor. Uh, that's way based on Torah law. Torah law says that you stand outside, you don't take their only garment because what are they going to do? You don't take their tools because isn't that a terrible thing? You take their tools that they actually make money in order to pay back the debt. There's all these obligations with creditor to the debtor. However, um, and you see in now the fourth paragraph, when, however, the geonim of the early generation, so now we're talking about the 800s and 900s uh, CE, saw that the number of deceitful people had increased Right? And the possibility of obtaining loans was diminished. Again, there's an economic interest. Right? So basically, the people were lying about property. They were hiding their property. And when they were hiding their property, 
creditors couldn't get to the property. And Jewish law says, leave them alone, leave them alone, don't go inside, don't get their property. So people were lying about it. So what does a creditor do? Creditors start saying, I'm not going to lend money anymore because I can't collect it. So when this was happening, and of course, who's punished by this most is more so than the creditor is actually future debtors, poor people. They can't get loans anymore. So they ordained that a debtor who claims bankruptcy should be required to take a severe oath. In Judaism, an oath is incredibly significant and Today, wouldn't actually think much about it, but an oath in those days was, was a very heavy, heavy thing to do. He takes an oath that he does not possess any property aside from that which was already given in consideration, that he said, I have, and that he's not hidden any property um, to others as a present with the intent for it to be, and he can't give it to anyone else that they're gonna, you know, deceitful that they'll give it back to me. I don't own any property, but my brother-in-law is holding on to, you know, everything. And then the bold. Look how the bankruptcy attempt is treated. He should include in the oath that any profit he makes and everything that comes into his possession or domain, which he acquires, he will not use to provide sustenance, clothing, or care for his wife or children. That he will not give any person in the world a present. Instead, he will take from everything that he earns uh, food for 30 days and clothing for 12 months. That is appropriate for him. And then it continues, what's appropriate? Don't live beyond your means, not that blood, or anything like that. In other words, the Rambam suggests that we don't have this concept of a discharge where you're clean and free and now start over. The opposite, you're still obligated. And in fact, the amount that you're, we're gonna let you live on is actually fairly limited and simple. It's a very basic uh, protection, but not much more than that. He, he, you don't get a fresh start. And you continue on the next page. This is elsewhere in the same set of laws. Uh, the second paragraph. Just as it is forbidden for a creditor to demand payment, which we spoke about already, so too is it forbidden for a borrower to withhold money that he possesses due to a colleague, telling him, go and return. The text says, do not tell your colleague, go and return. Similarly, it is forbidden for a borrower to take a loan and use it when it is unnecessary and to lose it, leaving his creditor without a source to collect the debt. This applies even if the owner is very wealthy, um, and it describes the person as wicked. The Chafetz Chaim, who I didn't put here, says that even if you are, your debt never disappears. In other words, even if the person seems to have forgiven you, you nevertheless, when you do have money, like uh, the instance will be, a person has no money, so you give whatever consideration you have. He gives, you know, he owes a million dollars, all he has in his pocket is $10, he gives the $10, doesn't mean he's now free and clear of the million dollars. 10 years later, 20 years later, 50 years later, he still owes that million dollars. There is no cancellation of the debt whatsoever. And so therefore, on first blush, if you asked me, based upon the Rambam, the Chavetz Chaim, and many others, does Jewish law support bankruptcy? And I would say, no, not in the way we understand it today, where you get a discharge and a, and a fresh start. However, today, um, in, in today, if you ask me, what is the halacha, the Jewish law on bankruptcy? By and large, across the Jewish world, bankruptcy is acceptable with a discharge. So what's happened between the Rambam and today? So there's been different attempts, yeah. Now, what kind? Well, I don't know if they speak specifically about chapter 7, 11, 13, but what type of bankruptcy they're going to be arguing um, is a cancellation of debt. In other words, not just a suspension of debt until you're in a better position, right? That seems to be what Jewish law is, but an actual cancellation, that you are clear and free, and it's, you can pay pennies on the dollar, and then you can be exempt from having to make up any additional obligation. 
and make a deal. And make a deal. Yes. That's actually, I will argue in about five minutes, uh, is the case that broke the camel's back that allows Jewish law to, uh, to take place. So the first attempt, I would say, many sources trying to justify bankruptcy is actually seemingly a, a good attempt. Shemitah, the Torah says that people would give loans and every seven years, the debt is canceled. It disappears completely. Um, and it was an economic interest as well as a moral thing, but people take loans and the Torah says specifically, and don't get greedy and don't get, you know, don't let it, your heart become, uh, you know, crush it over with, uh, uh, you know, anger or anything that you don't give out loans. Give out loans, give, surely give. Um, and know that it will be canceled every, every seven years. So that seems to be a model of some form of bankruptcy because it seems to be that's it. The problem with that is that if you look clear, closely at the sources, first of all, it doesn't really apply. First of all, because a lot of the commentaries say that even if you don't have a legal obligation to pay back your debt after seven years, um, you still have a moral obligation. So if you came into money, you should pay it back, even though you've been canceled. The second uh, reason why Shemitah doesn't work 100% is because Shemitah itself didn't work as a legal concept, and it was changed with the Prose Bowl. The Prose Bowl is a case of Hillel who saw that people were not giving out loans to the poor uh, because the debts were going to be canceled, and so therefore poor couldn't get any loans, so he introduced the Prose Bowl that basically allowed you to collect the loans afterwards. And the, the last reason why Shemitah is not a great example for this, at least for our specific case, is if you look at the second page again, or maybe it's the third page, but the Rambam Mishnah Torah Shemitah, the Laws of Shemitah, chapters nine, you'll see that even when Shemitah debts are canceled, there are exceptions. And one of those exceptions, for example, if you read the very first thing, an account at a store is not nullified for the sabbatical year. We don't treat that as a debt that's canceled. You know, that you're gonna have to still pay. If it's established as a debt, to a certain extent, what you Craig, had been talking about, how do you structure, right? Is it structured as a debt with the baked in um, and publicized and not just between two individuals? So in that case, then, it, uh, it is nullified, okay? There are different ways of around it. Um, if you go to the third example, it's our exact case. When a person divorces his wife before the sabbatical year, his obligations uh, to her by virtue of her ketubah are not nullified by the sabbatical year. In other words, he has an obligation to her even after the sabbatical year. The sabbatical year doesn't cancel his debt, which was the ketubah. Now, you could structure it in certain ways, but by and large, it doesn't. So that's our exact case of showing why you can't use Shemitah as the example of canceling the debts uh, completely. Um, so how then, or why then, do we say that bankruptcy law is more or less acceptable in Jewish law today? And that, I think, comes to the question of making agreements. Um, there is a concept in Jewish law, uh, the person who really champions this more than anyone else um, is the Marshak, uh, Rav Moshe HaKohen, from the 16th century Salonika, uh, and he says as follows, if we're talking financial matters, the, the minhag sochim, the customs of the uh, financial institutions of the day, the customs of the merchants, back and forth, if we want to participate in commercial dealings in these particular places, we follow whatever their customs are. And so therefore, we can follow the custom. And in Salonika, bankruptcy was permitted in some form. 
And the specific case, he had about six different cases that he used this same uh, idea. The one that became more famous is the one where there were something like a group of, I think, seven or eight creditors, and six of them said, let's make a deal where we're going to go to the debtor and we're going to make a deal where he's going to pay us you know, pennies on the dollar or whatever the case may be. And the last one, the last creditor says, no, I want it all, I'm waiting, and everything like that. And they turned to him, um, and he basically made the decision that if you have the majority of creditors who want to make a deal with this particular debtor, debtor we're going we're gonna to discharge it, they'll make the deal, and that deal, according to Jewish law, is binding because that is the custom, is actually 40% was the... The, the, not pennies on the dollar, but 40. So that was the custom that existed in that community, and they entered into the agreement because they were following the general custom of the community. So that principally became bankruptcy law throughout uh, Jewish time, and it more or less uh, influences uh, Jewish law in almost every place around the world um, till today, with the exception of one place, Israel. Israel did not really like bankruptcy law. Um, when it was established in 1948. It didn't really follow this Jewish law. And part of the reason is, what the, the Marshach was arguing is, we have to follow whatever the customs are of the places where we live. Israel says, well, wait a second. We can create our own custom. So if the custom is not based on Jewish law, we shouldn't follow it. So what should we follow? Now, what was interesting in 1948 is that you had the confluence of a number of very strong powers in Israel that didn't want bankruptcy law. See if you could think, who would be against bankruptcy law in the start of the state, and who is powerful? So, ah, the labor unions are huge, right? Labor unions are huge, and the kibbutzim. So you had socialists, and remember, the founders of the country were primarily socialists. Socialists were very much against bankruptcy uh, for a few different reasons. And what was interesting is, the kibbutzim in particular, they thought bankruptcy was a moral failure. It was a failure of people who were consumed with consumerism. It was a focus on the individual, right? I have to protect this individual. He made a bad choice. Why should the rest of us have to pay for his bad choice? Uh, Israel was a collectivist society, um, and it, it sort of very much uh, turned away from consumerism in general, uh, individualism in general. It's actually, Eliakim Rubinstein, who's a Supreme Court justice, wrote an, a very interesting article of comparing the Declaration of Independence of the United States um, and the the Declaration of Independence of Israel. And the word freedom appears in the U.S. Declaration a number of times, and it always means individual freedom. Whenever you read the, right, the rights to freedom, it's always talking about the individual. In Israel, it appears, I think, seven times. It always is talking about national freedom, the national freedom of the Jewish people. It never talks about individual freedoms. That wasn't where Israel was in the 1940s. Um, and so the, the, the socialists, the leftists, were against bankruptcy because it was flashy and showy when you were above your means, and bankruptcy was considered living above your means um, and focus on the individual rights as opposed to the collectivist needs. On the other end of the spectrum, the banks were incredibly powerful. Right? You need to get established quickly. The banks, therefore, helped build the country, and the banks were, had all the political power, uh, and the banks were obviously opposed to bankruptcy law as well because they were going to lose this money. The only time they wanted bankruptcy was to help the creditors get in line properly, but it wasn't about helping the, the, the individual who needed to file. So you had the right and the left, or I would say the capitalists and the socialists, in a rare moment of confluence of interest, were very much against bankruptcy, and Jewish law also agreed 
Because Jewish law basically said, we saw what the Rambam said, Jewish law allows this custom of whatever the custom is, but we didn't have that in Israel. And Jewish law, by and large, is more modest. You shouldn't spend really above your means. You should live uh, humbly. And so therefore, was also against it. Um, and so bankruptcy law, Israel was really outside of the, the, the norm for a long period of time. Um, and then something changed in around the 1970s. Part of it was political. The banks had really taken up too much power, and they passed a few laws that put people in jail if they couldn't pay their debt. Um, and so a number of Israelis, I'm talking thousands and thousands, were put into jail because they couldn't pay their debts. Almost all of these people who were put in jail were Sephardic Jews. Um, and so they didn't have much power, political power, right? The Ashkenazi elite in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but in the, the 70s, um, this sort of awakened sort of political consciousness amongst the Sephardic majority. And they began to have grassroots organization that their family was being thrown into prison because they couldn't pay their debts. Um, this also sort of political movement um, sparked a, a case um, that I think was decided, I want to say now 1980, but it had to do with cases before that. Um, and Justice Alone, who was a religious Supreme Court justice, who supported the law that I began with speaking about of the, that we should look at Jewish law. Um, even though Jewish law, in a sense, supported not being, uh, not really bankruptcy that much, he says, but this is too far. Look at the sources that we began with, right? I skipped over some of the things about the obligations of the creditor. The sensitivity of the creditor is to the debtor. He's not allowed to go inside. Um, only those properties that are found. You're not supposed to embarrass the person. Uh, there's a number of other sources. Uh, I don't know if I brought them or not. I didn't bring them. Uh, uh, it says, like, if you are a creditor, you're not allowed to walk down the same street where you know you'll see the debtor the debtor, because it's going to embarrass him if he sees you. Right? Jewish law is, has incredibly extensive writings about the sensitivity you're supposed to have to the debtor. Um, even though he's obligated to you, you're also obligated to him. And for sure, you cannot put a person in jail because they can't pay a debt in Jewish law. It's absolutely forbidden 100%. Um, you know, it existed throughout the world. The, when we say throw someone into the clink, right, the clink was the street on which the British debtor's prison existed. That was very, very common. So, but in Jewish law, it's absolutely forbidden. And Justice Alone started seeing all these people being thrown into prison as a clear violation of Jewish law and he pulled the plug, so to speak, on Jewish law support of being against bankruptcy. And he says, we've got to start dealing with this differently. And that was sort of the turning point. And then it developed that the state of Israel, many of the things that I spoke about that suggested not supporting bankruptcy, now began to argue for it. We know, for example, that um, the political powers changed. Right, The banks had less of a hold. You also had um, the, not, I don't want to say the downfall, but the weakening of the kibbutzim. You also had a growth in consumerism in Israel. You know, I think in the, the early years, um, there was something like 4% of the people owned a refrigerator. Uh, by the 1990s, 99% owned. There were very few people who owned cars. Then every, the, the stigma attached to some basic consumerism disappeared. Uh, and even more so, more recently, of course, Israel started to be known as the startup nation. Now, the only way you can be a startup nation and be entrepreneurial is if you're taking risks. 
and you don't encourage that risk-taking unless you're prepared for some failures to exist. And so the entire perspective of the state sort of changed itself so much so that in 2018, it passed a bankruptcy law that is more or less consistent with bankruptcy laws, sort of liberal bankruptcy laws throughout the world. I brought the quote uh, on the third page uh, from the Jerusalem Post, February 7th, uh, 2018. And the reason why I brought it actually is just to show you that everyone's on board, right? What, in the 1940s, there was a confluence against. Now almost the entire country is for, you see. After years of unusual bar bipartisan work spanning the full spectrum of right-wing, Arab, Haredi parties, the bill putting rehabilitating corporate and individual debtors became front and center in place of liquidation. Uh, and you could see all the people who were involved uh, in, in making that happen. So the answer to the question of whether or not Jewish law supports bankruptcy, now even in Israel today, it also exists in that same way. Okay, so those are the three competing values. Bankruptcy law, we see that it exists in Jewish law. The guarantor law, it exists in Jewish law. And the, uh, right, the importance of protecting the child exists in Jewish law. The question now is, how did, the, how did the district court decide? You want to take a chance? Which of those three values, I guess, which of those three values it felt was most important? Any? I, I don't want to guess because I don't do individual work generally. Okay. <laughs> so the, the district court... Okay, the district court says, we're going to side with the wife. The wife should get her money. And so that means we say that, yes, the importance of a fresh start is valuable in bankruptcy, but it can't trump the rights of the children. And so therefore, we are going to say the guarantor signed on for this obligation. We're going to say that, therefore, the guarantor is obligated to step in for the economic, the moral, whatever the, the, the husband, Edward, took upon himself, she, the guarantor is going to be obligated for all that stuff, and in fact, they're obligated. The guarantor appeals, and it goes up to the Supreme Court, and at the Supreme Court, it's reversed. The Supreme Court says, its number one argument is that we don't have to make this calculation of which is more important, the child or the concept of a fresh start. Why don't we have to do that? Because if the guarantor doesn't pay child support, what happens to the, the child? The child still gets money. The state steps in. And the same thing if the father doesn't pay child support. The child is not left bereft of any funds whatsoever. The state has to step in. That's part of Bituach Lomi, national insurance, and the like. So if we support uh, the, the child support premise alone, um, the bankruptcy law is going to be, the purpose of the bankruptcy law is going to be frustrated because no fresh start takes place. But if we support the fresh start concept, the child support is not frustrated. The child still, still gets what they, they need to do. Um, so that was the court's decision. They weighed the things and they said, we don't have to be so worried because we'll have this nevertheless. There is a, a, um, a dissent within the opinion and says, yeah, but that's you know, a cop out. Let's decide for the wife anyway, because that's more important. Let's say that it's more important to take care of our children than to give the fresh start. What I started with is the th third pick thinking. I don't think we need to compare these three, which is more important for society, but I think the decision of the Supreme Court is correct, that the guarantor doesn't have to pay, and I think it's based a little bit upon the reasoning that was used previously, that there's two types of debts that are taking place, a moral debt and an economic debt, and the guarantor did not take the moral debt. The guarantor 
to a certain extent, is blameless. And that's what some of the legal commentaries argue, is like, we shouldn't punish the guarantor because really she's blameless. She didn't, you know, she didn't do anything wrong. I would argue, and I came across an interesting uh, Gemara, uh, interesting Talmudic case, that goes further than that. It's not that the guarantor didn't do anything wrong. We want to encourage guarantors in our society. So if you look at, let's see what page we're now on. Okay, the third page, uh, you'll see it's, um, it's right below the Jerusalem Post article. You see that? Okay. So there is this Mishnah and then the Gemara, it appears in a couple of different places. Uh, we, we can read it inside, but let me explain to you the case. It goes back to the, the cases of the Ketubah. Uh, young man and woman, they want to get married. They can't afford to get married because of the cost of the Ketubah. So the man goes to his friend, the guarantor, says, I'll sign for you. A year later, the man divorces his wife. He hasn't collected any money yet, so the guarantor has to pay the money up to the wife. He took on the obligation. The courts get a little bit concerned with this situation. What are they concerned about? They're concerned about this was a fast money-making deception plan. The husband and wife need some money. Where can they get the money? They get divorced. They ask the guarantor to pay. And next year, what do they end up doing? They get married again, and everything's fine. They got a quick money from the, the guarantor. Everything's taken care of. By the way, lest you think that this only appears in the Talmud, I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Border versus uh, the commissioner, the IRS commissioner. You know the that case? Was my area of law. That was your area, okay. So you'll correct me, but what I remember uh, from that case is there was a couple in 1975, I believe, or 76, and they lived in Maryland, and the way the, they were both, I think, government employees, and the way it worked out is that their tax bill actually was higher if they were married. But, and the way it was calculated for taxes is what was your marital situation December 31st of the end, the end of the year? And so they went down to Haiti, they had a vacation, they got divorced on December 31st or December 30th, whatever it is. They filed their taxes. They paid less as individuals. They come back to Maryland. They get married, you know, January 7th, something like that. They paid less taxes. They did it again the next year. This time, I think, instead of Haiti, they went to the Dominican Republic. They're always going somewhere, you know, in the Caribbean, nice and warm. And they would have continued to do this nonstop of basically divorcing at the end of every year in order to pay lower taxes. Eventually, the IRS commissioner stopped this. The court goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, we're not going to recognize these foreign divorces. It's a sham, and, and so forth and so on. So the, the, the Gemara and the Baitin had the exact same problem. This could be a scam, and it's not right to the guarantor. So they said, how do we protect us? So the way, they, don't, they want to keep the guarantor system going, so they said, this is what we're going to do. The husband has to take a vow. You remember I said vows were incredibly serious. The vow he had to take was, I will not benefit from this wife who I'm divorcing again. In other words, he took a vow that he would not remarry her. Now, that's a, a severe case because it's, you know, it's a violation of personal choice and the like, but the rabbis were very concerned of not letting this guarantor be taken advantage of. And so you want to get divorced and get the guarantor to force a payment? Fine, we'll make him pay, but you have to promise that this is not a scam. So that's the, the first case. Yeah? Doesn't the guarantor have a claim back against the principal obligor of him paying? 
If they end up getting married again, you mean? No, if he pays. Yeah, if he... So, if the guarantor pays, yeah, yeah there, there's a, an obligation back to the original debtor. Right. I'm sorry, t tell me the case again. We have... The, the, the debt's a million dollars. We're not, are we talking about the marriage case or a different... No. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, probably. Okay. okay, yes. The debt's a million dollars. Principal obligor that owes the debt, you have the guarantor yeah. that's going right. to pay the debt. Uh, the guarantor pays the debt. Yes. Doesn't he have a claim for a million dollars? At whenever the debtor can do it. It's interesting. Okay. Yeah. You mean if he ever comes up into the money or something like that? The truth is, in Israel, less so. Because Israel, the, the, the assumption of the guarantors, I assume it's probably everywhere, is the guarantors are almost always family. It's almost because there are very few people who are going to sign on for what reason? What are the, what's the consideration the person is receiving to guarantor this, this thing? So it's almost always the parents who make that, and we don't let the parents then collect back from their kids, at least in Israeli. So I, I'm not sure how it, works, or how it works elsewhere. So now the case comes up again, because it wasn't just this husband and wife who want to have a scam. Look at the next case. There's a man who sold his property and was then divorcing his wife. The, 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 the property he is selling to had a, in, uh, an uh, encumbrance, meaning there was the ketuba is, is leveraged. Um, what's, I'm forgetting my English. What's the right word? Uh, it's, I guess mortgaged. It's mortgaged. Okay. So, um, so he sells his property to a person, um, but the same scam. And then he, he's, he, I divorced my wife. The, they collect the money from the value of the property. So the person who bought the property bought property that is now worth 180,000 shekels less than we thought because the ketubah money was taken out. So the, the, the Gemara asks the questions. What is the law here? We learned about the case of the guarantor, but what is the case of a purchaser of land? Do, do we make him take the husband take a vow again that he will not remarry the wife or anything like that? So the response of the Gemara is at the end. He replied, must the Tana, who's a teacher, go on enumerating like a peddler? I have to say every single case, a guarantor, a purchaser. No, if I told you a guarantor, that we, we make the guarantor take the oath, but we don't make the purchaser, I mean the, the husband and the purchaser case, take an oath. So the Gemara then asks, what's the difference between these two cases? The case of the guarantor, who the Gemara is concerned to protecting him, and the case of the purchaser, who the Gemara says, you're on your own. And I think the answer is, we'll read it in a second of the Gemara, is the purchaser, he's involved in an economic transaction. You take risks. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And so you know what? Someone scammed you. We're not happy. They're not saying we're happy about it. We'll do the investigation. But we're not going to interfere so significantly where we're going to make a person take an oath that they cannot get married ever again to this person. That's fairly draconian. So the, the Gemara says, the rabbi said, we're not going to do that to a purchaser because he had some, not that he had some knowledge, buyer beware. You know, if you're going to buy this land, do all your due diligence, know who you're getting involved with, all these different things. I think there's also yes. a, a social reason with, with the marriages. I mean, you want to encourage marriage. You want to encourage marriage. So but if the guarantor knows that he can get screwed, not going to guarantee the, the ketubah. Yeah. So by, by oh, so but if he knows he's protected, he'll continue. So wait, so yeah. it could, could be like what we were talking about before, sort of an economic interest of the whole society. That, yeah. But but it, the social element you're talking about, I think, even goes further. That's what the Gemara says. What? Why do we want to protect the guarantor? Not just 
not just because he didn't do anything wrong, as I said, the bank, the bank case. He did a mitzvah, as exactly as you said. We want to encourage him, not just because of encouraging marriage. Throughout the entire society, we want guarantors. We want people stepping forward and risking themselves, even for no benefit. They're not going to always get a benefit. They, they're not going to be able to collect, necessarily. But we still need those type of people, because those are the type of people. Think about, think about our community. Think about the people who spend day and night to help a community get off the ground, or to be the philanthropist behind it. They do not get things back. But society needs those people to make sure that things get continue. They're doing this business. So the, I think the rabbis say, we want to protect the guarantor because we need more of those type of people. We need more of those type of people who take responsibility on those things. And you can see this concept of guarantor exist in a whole series of other uh, legal issues. I'll just take very quickly, for example, um, uh, tzedakah, charity, right? What does a guarantor really enable? The model of the guarantor. The guarantor is basically enabling you to do what you want to do, right? He, he's not giving you a loan and then saying this way. He's saying, you want to get married? You want to build a house? You want to do this? I'm just here to help you facilitate that possibility. And it's a huge mitzvah that he's accomplished. So look at the, the Rambam's laws of charity. I'm sure you're familiar, right? You've heard there's the eight levels of charity and everything like that. The highest level, the greatest level is to support a fellow Jew by endowing him with a loan. We know about that concept. Give him a loan, help him work. But he also says, or entering into a partnership with him. The Beit Yosef, which is the, the, really the, the basic Jewish law, the book on Jewish law, below that, really says the second thing the Rambam says is really the key, to go into partnership with another person. Um, Rev Abba said in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, this is the bottom of the page, he who lends is greater than he who performs charity. Why? Why is it greater to lend than to give charity? You would think giving away something is better than asking for it back. Well, the person who gives a lend, you don't embarrass the person. If you help a person give them money, you help them on their own accomplish something, and so it's even a greater level. But then he goes on and says, but you know what, even when you give a loan, an interest-free loan, even that actually is a little bit embarrassing because he needed the loan, and at the end of the day, the person is indebted to you for the loan that you gave him, even if we don't ask him to acquire it. Give. So he says there's even something higher. Go into partnership. Partnership is greater than them all. Rashi explains that this is because the poor person is not embarrassed. He says, if you go into partnership with someone and you help him make money, and you also make money at the exact same time, so this poor person now feels, not only do I not owe you, I actually helped you on some level. And you also, I gained. So the, the, the ideal version of tzedakah, of charity, is actually to make money. Make money with another person that you go into partnership together and you're successful together. It doesn't embarrass him. It helps him, all these different things. That, I think, is the model of the guarantor. The guarantor has a sense of responsibility to other people. I, I just want to maybe I want to finish in a few minutes. So uh, I, uh, let me just jump, jump uh, ahead to another topic, uh, Shemitah. We spoke about Shemitah, cancellation of debt. Um, so the cancellation of debt is a similar concept here. Um, we're trying to help people out, give them a chance. Um, and people have talk, spoken and asked, what is the ideal Jewish economy? This is actually a class I've given that's an hour and a half in and of itself. So some people say, look at Shemitah, say, well, it's very socialist. It's protecting you know, the rights of people. Yovel, Yovel is the 50th year, um, uh, the seven, seven cycles. Um, and their people's properties are returned back to them. Right? There's a redistribution of wealth. Uh, so it seems that it's more socialist. Uh, then other people point out and say, yeah, but look carefully at these things. Um, 
Uh, first of all, wealth, the, the, the Torah doesn't, uh, doesn't attack wealth. Avraham is described as wealthy. It's, Yitzchak is described as wealthy. It's actually a positive thing. Um, when, you, when you cut the corners of the field to give to the widow and the orphan, you don't actually give it to them. There's actually a bootstrapping element of it. They have to come to the field and collect it for themselves. So you have both elements, right? You have, Judaism has both elements from the right and left when it talks about economic issues. Um, so is there a cohesive way of looking at what Judaism is really trying to get at when it comes to economic issues? So if you look, um, I would argue there is. If you look at the Torah, Deuteronomy 15, there's a word that appears here each time when it's describing of helping uh, a needy person. If there be among you a needy person from one of your brothers, from one of your cities, um, you shall lend him for all that is needs for your needy brother. Uh, beware of being unfaithful and have a bad thought that the seventh year is approaching and, and don't begrudge your needy brother. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall surely open your hand to your brother, the poor and needy one in your hand. What word there appears again and again? Brother. Um, I remember once, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jerusalem, um, I was trying to get out of a street uh, off of Emekrafim. Emekrafim is a major commercial street, and I was on a narrow street, and I was pulling out, and it's a two-way street, and a car was pulling in on Emekrafim, a big truck, and we were stuck. And uh, there wasn't any room for both of us, and one of us had to let the other one go first. And I was thinking, wow, this is great. You know, there's a Gemara that talks about two camels that get to the same point on a bridge at the same time, and who's supposed to go first, the one who has a heavier burden, a lower burden. Um, and I was like, rolling down my window, and I was like, I was about to like say, isn't this an amazing thing? We're living in a Gemara right now. We can, we can learn Torah as we're stuck on the street here. And apparently... Um, he wanted to share with me a different Gemara that he was learning, that he was saying at a very high volume. I wasn't familiar with all the words uh, as they were coming at me. But the thing that was interesting is, as we're stuck here, and, we're, and he's shouting at me and screaming at me, he, and he's talking in Hebrew, he intersperses every word with achi, 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 my brother, my brother, my brother. And it's the, something you see in Israel a lot. You see people... Even when they're angry at each other, they say, Achim, my brother. There's a sense of sort of cohesiveness. And the truth is, in the Torah itself, our judges are called, I'm, I'm, I didn't bring all the texts, but if you look at all the texts that appear uh, throughout the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, it says, when it describes the judges, they're described as your brother. The king is described as your brother. The Kohanim are described as your brother. That's on the positive. Then it, needy are described as your brother. But your enemies are also described as your brothers, right? The sone, you're not allowed to hate your sone, the, the evil one who is your brother, right? There's an assumption even the evil one is your brother. It's, it, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And so there is in the, the, the narrative of the Torah, I think, also an economic solution to the question we raised, that I don't know which is worthy of greater emphasis, but I know that the value you have to have is you have to look at the other person as your brother, as how would you treat a family member in this case? Family members, you know, sometimes you need tough love. You can't just give them, but they're your brother. So it may mean that you cancel a debt. It may mean that you don't cancel a debt. But the thing that the, 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 what's really holding it all together is that you view the entire concept of the adventure as, as a family. Um, that's on the economic level. And I say that's what the guarantor is accomplishing as well. The guarantor is basically saying, because you would do it for your brother. You would step forward and take a risk 
And the Torah wants to encourage that and make sure that people are always prepared uh, to, to do that. And so therefore, that's what they, uh, that's why the Torah, I think, makes that uh, concern with the guarantor in that same case. Uh, and that's how I think Jewish law would decide this case, is that we have to support the, the concept of the guarantor, encourage it more, and especially since the child is gonna get paid from the state anyway, then do that protection. Just wanna end one last point, which is, you know, the Jewish people are named after Yehuda, the tribe of Judah. Yehuda means uh, giving thanks. Um, and so to a certain extent, I've always thought the Jewish people are uh, best described as people who are the thankfulness people. We should always be filled with, with gratitude. But then I thought about it for a little bit. You know, the, the Gemara says, the Talmud says, um, every human being is given three names. The name that we are given by our parents, the name we are given by our colleagues, and the name we make, give to ourselves by the actions we engage in. Um, and I was thinking about that. So the Jewish people are Yehuda, Yehudim, Jews, and we should be filled with gratitude all the time. But that's the name that Yehuda's parents gave him. What is the name that he took for himself? And if you look at the Torah portions we're learning now, right, Yehuda is best known as a guarantor, right? Benjamin is, Shimon is down in prison. Benjamin is, and what, what does Yehuda say to his father? He says, I will be the guarantor. I will make sure that whatever happens, Benjamin is going to get out of prison. And indeed he does that. When we get to the Parsha that Vayigash, Yehuda says, Yosef has still kept it all hidden. Yosef is going to, he doesn't know, he's the most powerful man in the world. Yehuda says, I've made a commitment. I'm going to step forward and watch my brother, Binyamin, at all costs. Um, and so that's really who the Jewish people are. The Jewish people, if we want to say we're consistent with Yehuda, we are people who are prepared to be guarantors for our brothers across the board. And that influences every action, whatever political, economic persuasion one comes from, that influences, I think, the perspectives that we come from. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.